0: Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and, more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode, and thanks for listening.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the DFD Podcast. Uh, your host here, Keith Schweitzer, and I'm super excited to have, uh, as I said on Twitter, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Gary Marcus on. So uh, Gary is uh, owner, along with his wife, uh, Hillary, at uh, Mark Hill Holstein's, but Gary has a little bit different... Uh, uh, job there too with uh, Alta Genetics as the elite account manager. So he's quite busy and uh, he just had a newborn on the, just before the weekend too. So I'm, I'm real happy to have you here, Gary. And uh, and if you just want to say hi to everybody and maybe talk a little bit about what uh, you guys do at Mark Hill.
2: Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess start with uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Uh, a little bit of an oversell on the introduction, but uh, that will push that out of the way. But, um, yeah, so, uh, Hillary and I, uh, with our four kids, uh, operate, uh, Mark Hill Holsteins, uh, it's about 95 cows, give or take, um, uh, just South of or Ontario. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I guess we just run a, largely a milk facility with, uh, about 177, 180 acres of, uh, cropping on the side. Um, we are, we don't do any of the custom crop, sorry, we are all custom cropping. Um, we do not do a whole lot with that at all, it's uh, put in the bunks and silos and feed out. So um, outside of that, uh, I guess my full-time job is with Alta Genetics as a only account manager with, for Southwestern Ontario with a couple other people in the region. Um, that takes up the majority of my time um, outside of the dairy. So.
1: Well, no, and we really appreciate having you on here. And I know uh, this is kind of a hot button subject that we get every year. You know, this time, this time, you know, coming up the end of November, into December, we're always talking about culling and, uh, you know, some of the decision making processes that go into it. Now, hopefully we don't have to cull as heavy as we normally do. There might be some rumblings of some extra incentives and things out there, but eventually uh, the taps got to get turned off. Uh, generally in uh, November December and uh, you know it's a much easier time to make milk so maybe if you want to start walking us through um, like what are some of the important criteria to consider when calling like I know you're running your own operation and and I know you do a lot of record evaluation with producers uh, from the Alta side so where would you start if you had to take a kind of a helicopter view of the farm?
2: Well I think uh, from a a general standpoint um, I think a the second we you know, want to talk about calling is we want to make sure that we're more profitable the day that cow or that animal or that group leaves um, and without compromising future production with, you know, calving intervals and, and um, projected calvings and whatnot. Um, so, you know, and that's again, a little bit different when you're looking to heifer calling, but uh, generally one of the, the key things I always want to start with is again, not impacting future milk um so that's you know main we generally for our clientele like to keep us their some, them somewhere around 70 to 80 percent in the next uh seven and a half months um so you know if we're using a hundred cow herd for a, just an example you'd be somewhere around 10 animals a month average uh sorry 70 80 percent of their quota holdings pregnant at any one time um so that's just using, you know, rough numbers for most people, but somewhere in that 70 to 80 pregnancies of a 100 cow dairy. And basically what we know for, you know, a high level is that that herd will never run short of milk, which has to be the primary focus that, you know, we never run low on milk um, first and then call the excess. So that's one of the key indicators I like to look at when we're looking at dairies information is do we have enough cows to keep pregnant that we will sustain milk flow? Um, And then uh, once we acknowledge that, so, you know, part of that problem comes to, there's two different, you know, a herd with a, let's say a 20% preg rate is very different calling wise than a herd that's running a 30% preg rate, even though they both have access milk. Um, There's significant um, efficiencies gained by having less cows, producing the same amount of milk as it does, let's say with a pregnancy rate of 20% um, going forward. So those are one, that's probably the main one I first look at is, you know, do we actually have a calling problem or do we have a, an open cow or open heifer problem um, that we're masking just by sheer inventory? Um, and then from there, we'll get into more of the individual, um, you know, or groups of individuals. So let's say for my dairy alone, um, I kind of work on any, you know, I'll give a, a two year old an op- opportunity to have a poor lactation or poor, low, below herd average lactation or below uh, herd mates of, say, my two year old averages. Um, but if she's below average again as a second calver, she's automatically a call cow, regardless of her name, sire, whatever number she is. Um, and then, uh, so the, automatically, my 50% of my second calvers will be called. Um, just based off poor performance um, in in, concurring lactations. Um, And then after that, I I really like to use a hard line of somewhere, and it's dairy to dairy, but somewhere around 200 days in milk that a cow will not get bred again, regardless of performance, anything. Um, And that's, you know, 200, 225. Um, There's some really good data that we've been able to run off our herds that show you know statistically speaking those cows aren't going to perform as good or as your average two-year-old so at what point are we going to you know continue to nurse longevity at the sake of profitability.
1: Yeah and that's an interesting point and I know you've made that one too about the 200 day in milk cutoff um, like can you maybe dive into maybe some more of the statistical analysis that like like subsequent lactations after I know you said they had only a certain amount of milk as the previous lactation. Like, is there some hard numbers that you can put to that?
2: Yeah. So, um, I know, uh, so generally speaking, that number is somewhere between, so cows, bred. so what we want to know is, um, is cows, bred? basically looking at cows that are bred over 200 days. We'll just for 200 today, we'll use 200 days that those animals because of, um, Access body weight, um, the, the volatile, the volatility in body condition score, post and pre or pre and post calving, um, the effects of metritis ketosis, um, you know, and the clinical effects of those things as well on future milk. Most herds will be between sixty-five and seventy-five percent of their future or their current two-year-old average milk. So basically, what we're trying to say is, are we better off breeding that cow, or are we better off milking her out and keeping an extra milk, keeping a two-year-old that's going to produce the exact same as that cow, and we would gain maybe five to ten thousand kilos on that old cow of milk, and but we would hold on to that two-year-old that could produce twenty-five to thirty-five thousand kilos of milk um, under the same stall in the barn that day. So that's one of the, and, and we've been doing it over well, quite a few herds and almost every herds, their, their two-year-olds outperform this type of cow, which you know, again, meets the criteria of over 230, 200 days in milk. Um, and then calving in and their following lactation being 65 to 75% of what it was the previous lactation. So basically, again, we're trying to get rid of our management problems. Mm -hmm. Um, or cows that we can best say these cows are statistically speaking are going to be our trouble cows and become, you know, in our sick pens, dead stock trucks, whatever, trying to eliminate those cows. And um, one of the other things I always like to look at or kind of phrase it is a little bit, I want to sell every cow on her best day to go. Every cow is going to leave the farm um, and I want to sell her for the most meat price. Or, you know, if you're in the dairy ring business, you're going to sell her for the most dairy price that you can get but every cow leaves and then we want to make sure that you know I'm getting 80 cents instead of 40 cents for yeah. that cow the day she leaves
1: yeah and I know I always kind of talk to producers about it and it's probably like a broken record but I always say like when you send out a call cow you get a check when you send out dead stock you have to cut a check right and, exactly. it, and it's almost just as simple as that like like you said like having cows leave on their best day rather than their worst day is uh I think quite imperative, not only from a economic standpoint, but probably from an animal welfare standpoint as well, where, you know, the government and everybody else is really cracking down in sales yards on, you know, shipping three-legged cows. So, you know, how do we, culling is inevitable. Culling is inevitable. So how do we do what's best for that animal?
2: Right. And, And, and again, I think a lot of people get caught up in the word longevity and not necessarily, um, you know, that milk comes at an expense as well. And, um, we only have so many stalls in the barn and we got to maximize every stall and that's where keeping that cow, you know, again, I use the, the 200 day limit or something like that. Um, keeping that cow and capping her out. Yeah. She might give you 45 kilos for a you know, level of time, but the reality is, you know, there's no, you have lots of two year olds doing that exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and just way more efficiently. Doing that at that same time, Um, and um, so we can't get like I said earlier. We can't get longevity in the way of profitability. And um, I would say somewhere between forty and fifty percent of cows have one lactation too many. From a from a calling standpoint, like yeah, uh, we, we you walk into herds, I walk into herds, and the you know we go look past walk past sick pen, and every cow in the sick pen has an excuse, and most of them are tied to I shouldn't have bred her last time, but she got pregnant the time I bred her. And it was like, well, you know, if we just made that decision day 30, because we weren't happy with her or day 60 of the previous lactation, we would have sold her for 70 cents a pound instead of, you know, whatever she's going to sell at. And, you know, when we get to calling, a lot of times nowadays for sure, where that we have access in animals, they sold a two-year-old or didn't make a two-year-old that would produce more than she's producing now. And then it's yep. like, well, so that was a net negative call basically, yeah. right? Because we don't have the material today that we gave away or you know, gave away, depending on how you want to look at it. And we got, had to, you know, we got left with a less than ideal animal to, to milk or a management failure to milk.
1: Yeah. And I know when I, uh, I learned that a long time ago from one of my mentors is, is like, uh when a cow calves in, you have to assess her right there. Can that cow physically have another calf and perform another lactation at her top level? And they're not easy decisions to make. And I, and it's easy for me to say, because I'm just looking at a herd and I'm looking at the numbers. I have no, I have no emotional tie to that cow. I didn't feed it as a calf and I didn't raise it as a heifer. And I didn't put a lot of the, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into dairy farming into it. But I think sometimes what producers do, they get caught holding on to animals like you say that probably just should not never been bred back. You know they could have been milked off, could have been put on a DM breed, DNB and list or a do not breed list, and and you know dealt with when uh, when they did have a surplus of milk, right?
2: Yeah, oh, totally. And then um, you know historically, uh, I think uh, the breed as a whole and management as a whole as well are getting considerably better at getting cows pregnant. So we for a while there we were terrified to. I know I grew up. We never call a pregnant cow, and um, you know there are some gray areas around that for sure. Once you get heavy in calf, but um, for now, now even now, like we're a lot of herds are to the point where you know if you're in that twenty-five to thirty percent range, you have flexibility to make that decision to call a cow that is pregnant or sell a cow that some however disposal disposal way you want to go about it, but we have, we have options on those cows because we have enough cows pregnant and it's not going to hurt our milk flow. And sometimes it's better to get rid of her at that point, whether it be feet feet and legs issue or uh, whatever, something that is going to compromise her through the transition period that can save us a big headache come fresh cow period. So
1: like in general, if you look uh, at
2: something, we've always in general, have bitten ourselves in the foot a little bit.
1: Well, I think if you look at like an overview of a herd, anytime you use the word transition, that's where your problems are. So if you can keep a cow from transitioning that isn't, you know, physically fit enough to, to handle having a calf, you know, a lot of those 200 day and milk animals that you're putting at your cutoff, likely if you look back at their history, they had an issue earlier on, whether it be around calving or whether they had a incidence of lameness or things like that. So there's a reason now that the cows, we know so much about getting cows pregnant that there's a reason that that cow hasn't got pregnant. So do you want her to have a future at your farm?
2: Right. And whether you're going beef, like today's world, you're going to breed her beef or you're going to breed her gen- to genetically improve her is, is, you got to ask yourself, do you want the outcome of that? And yeah. um, again, like you said, it's, you know, a lot of that stuff, we know full well, statistically speaking, which comes from our, our own information a lot of time, because you know, the more data we can put in here, you know, your on-farm software, the more we can help predict, you know, producer driven, not just, not just consultant driven, but yeah. we can predict, you know, a higher rate of what cows are going to be the ones that we want to keep. And I don't, I know at my dairy, I don't need to keep every cow. I want to keep the right cows. And yeah. um, that doesn't mean even genetically ranking wise that it might not be the highest one, but I want to make sure that concurrently I'm keeping the right old cows. I don't need all cows to be old cows.
1: Well you need profitable cows around. Absolutely. And problem-free cows around which I think uh carry a lot of weight right so. yeah. Like how do you like how do you on your own farm like how do you use your records to kind of evaluate your culling decisions?
2: Um so for me um <laughs> so once I've eliminated um um, say poor, ca- so cows that have are on their second lactation that 50% of the tier or second calvers that do not calve again based solely on past performance or current and past performance. Um, that takes care of the lion's share of poorer cows um, or call cow candidates. Um, and then I again don't breed a cow after 200 days, so that helps take care of again that older segment of cows. Or again, trouble cows. Why? Why don't they get pregnant? Um, so um, I do use sex semen on my heifers. So that does create an over amount of heifers potentially. Um, so once I get into my heifers, um, I don't breed it. I, I call heifers that are so. I guess backtrack a little bit. My heifers are all housed off farm. They are custom raised. Um, I right from day one. Um, I pay a, a daily fee. Um, to have the raise. So, I, with that, I want to only milk, keep slash milk the ones that actually do the best. So, we actually call all heifers that don't gain 800 grams of gain a day, starting from wean. right post weaning is when we get rid of them. We make that decision at post wean. If they did not gain 800 grams, they're automatically called. We sell them through um, ours, go to a, a neighbor, but um, a neighbor uh, beef guy. Um, but yeah, whether you go through, uh, you know, the Olexes or the Danfields of the world, it doesn't matter. But we, we choose not to, to keep any animal that doesn't gain the minimum what we want through the weaning or milk and weaning process. Um, after that, um, we move into treatments. Um, we, we record all the heifer treatments that possible. And the, the pneumonia is the daily gains again. And uh, say a scours events or something like that. Um, Again, just through the Alta side we've been able to you know again correlate high or poor record or not poor record, sorry the opposite of that. Calves that have treatments are calves that do poor in the milk line. You know, I don't think that's reinventing the wheel um, but again, for you know a herd that has too many heifers, that's one of the number one things that we would go to and say. This heifer's had two treatments. We know statistically speaking, she's not gonna make her genetic potential. So she's a high level call cow or call animal at whatever stage you need them to call. So by the time those two things are three things, I guess for me, so that's mean weight treatments. And after that, uh, I'm basically where I wanna be for replacement levels. So that's that's how it works for my farm. Um, But yeah, if I'm homegrown, as far as uh, on-farm heifer management and inventory, then maybe that's a different, but for me, every animal I get, or I get, it has a $2,200 bill tied to her. I'm yeah. just raising her 2,100 and change or whatever. But you know, if you're, <clears throat> if you're raising every animal and not just the ones you need, then, you know, replacement value versus um, um, uh, the extra animal to raise are, are considerably different costs.
1: Yeah. So So you're just making the conscious business decision not to raise any heifer longer than you need to.
2: Right. Like I'm in, I'm in every, every one of my heifer calves. I'm whether regardless of what she gains, I'm in about $750, regardless of, you know, just in straight milk costs to about a hundred days, give or take. Um, So I make that time at that point, I make the cost of, you know, when do I want to lose more? Well, I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna raise. I'm not gonna raise this calf past 100 days because she didn't make the daily weight targets.
1: Yeah, it goes back to your first loss is probably your best loss.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And like, do you see that on maybe on an industry side? Like, maybe take your farmer cap off and put your advisor cap on and like you're dealing with a, a lot of herds out there. Are you seeing producers, you know, doing the average daily gains and keeping the records on the heifers and making those uh, calling decisions?
2: Well, we're, def- we're definitely seeing an uptake in record keeping. Um, I think there's a lot of dairy struggling with how to do daily gains and whether it's group daily gain or um, again, ideally there's, it's individual daily gain. Um, the so we're, we're seeing a little bit of uptake in that but not what i think we could because again if we have daily gain there's no there's um there's once that animal is behind that animal does not catch up you know the only way that happens is if we get a group sag and so if we can pull those animals out at that specific time um we're way better off again to identify those animals early eliminate them from the group and um so again, that's, data's that power. So if we can get more herds, weighing calves, you know, and for me, even again, yeah, you look at some of the calf information coming out of the U S through like the Bob Corbett's of the world, for instance, um, daily gain is directly tied to milk production. And um, so the more points we have to check, the more we can correlate that back to an accurate information. But, you know, if we just get birth weight and wean weight, or I like to do post-transition weight, to be honest with you. So if, Again, once that calves through all the struggle points, what did she actually do through them? And not just the you know, lots of calves do great on milk and then have a secondary once we wean them onto starter or whatever we want to feed them after that. They have a, a, a bit of a sag in there. Well, I want to know what, I would prefer the number that's after that. And, and you know, can we get to that 800 grams of daily gain minimums?
1: That's interesting. On, so you're
2: obviously the higher, the better, obviously, but, um, yeah for me again the threshold's 800 it just we see enough that they're not going to make that genetic potential um, and she becomes a management failure and she comes works somewhere else for a while and
1: i mean that's interesting so that's goes back to where you said like you're looking at your 100 day weight compared to yeah and and that makes a lot of sense because then you've got rid of the transition you know, they, they tend to go backwards a little bit for a week or two after you take them off milk and no matter what you do with the transition, whether you yeah, it does, do the, the best the, yeah. The best way you can do it. The best
2: dairy go, farms are going to have that. Sorry. The best dairy farms are going to have some level of transition lag there or a transition sag through that calf pen. And so that, and then, yeah, I, I find by a hundred days they're on their new feed. They're, they're well into that group setting, um, whether it be small group or large group, but that's, to me, that's the best time to say, well, this calf did this through her period and now we're only going to raise the best
1: 70%. And, and to be honest, like the first, I would say probably 120 days are the most expensive in the calf's entire life cycle. Like that's when you're, you know, you're putting the calf starter and a lot of places are putting milk replacer through them and things like that. Like it's the, yes. it's the high value time of, uh, of heifer raising.
2: Yes absolutely. And then, yeah after that you get into your you know, depending on how you want to do it, but forage a lot more forage, right, so then you can yeah. get uh, lower your cost per day and stuff so
1: yeah do you do you consider genetics or like genomics when you're making these calling decisions or you're using just straight hard factors no so
2: a- um <clears throat> i'm not a uh I'm a genomics guy, as far as like from a uh, genetic standpoint, but um, i guess the, i'm I've, i'm very quite against uh, genetic, genetically testing them um, and then ranking them that way. Um, the reason being um i guess the biggest reason being is i can 't affect genetics post conception, so the conceptions made the genetic traits of which goes what way are are, are present um, once, um, I guess, from just from the Alta side, I, I, there's just very few herds that are so genetically tight that the re-ranking changes outside of parent average. Um, from a lot, of like animals don't generally go from fourth quartile to first quartile. It's just, it almost never happens. Um, so, I, you know, if that's barely happening at our elite end, that, that's not happening essentially at our low end, which even my herd let's say is you know average let's say at best but those animals it's just not happening so then it comes down to again how many times did and I'll use my herd again how many times did Gary screw up in that life in that calf's life um, if, again then that's why I use daily gain as a as a key indicator and then number of treatments um, as as your two main ones because again the genetics we're made at conception and that's not changing regardless of how many times she gets sick. But we do know that if they do get sick, they're not going to make the genetic potential. So we're still we're far better off milking our healthiest cows, so not necessarily you're, our highest genetic cows. So
1: you're just, you're going back to, okay, I'm going to give her the best genetics to start with and how those are expressed are completely up to me.
2: Absolutely. And in, yeah. every, every individual herd even, and um, I, I don't care at all what ranking you want to use. Be it type per dollars in Canada, TPI in the U.S., net merit, blah blah blah. Whatever you want to use, but again, the generally speaking, even the majority of herds I know, um, the difference between sires, let's just for per dollars, is more than a thousand dollars between the top end bull in the tank and the lowest end bull in the tank. So if you want an easy calling, it's going to be all the ones out of the lowest bull mm-hmm. just genetically speaking. And that's not going to change by finding, you know, spending $40 to find out what their genomics is or whatever your price point is. Well, and, and it's and that, pretty well $40 around the board, but there the, again, the, the reality is unless you have a perfect system and I haven't found one, I'd rather take that $40 and spend it on where cows actually leave my herd, which generally transition pen, um, fresh cow management, you know, and it might be half a raising, but I'd rather take that 40, $40 per calf and apply that somewhere where I can actually make a tangible difference on making cows last longer.
1: Yeah. And I always thought that was, that's interesting because people will look at the genetics and the genomic numbers, but then they'll have three bouts of pneumonia. So will that, those genes won't, that genomic number won't be realized because you've may created a problem. That's not going to let that animal express those. Genetics. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. And we'll see, we'll see uh, between treatment levels, like calves that have a single dose of treat, a single treatment will average a lot. Of, and most of the herds we see, we see a single treatment being 200 kilos less milk on one single treatment. Um, versus an animal that did not get treated and, and then adding treatments to that it obviously gets worse and worse um, yeah so the the cost of the genetic i think the goal should always be to make the best genetic outcome um and then you know trying to keep the again the the whole point of genomic testing i guess for me yeah it would be to where did those animals rank with them genetically and, and milking the top 75% or the milk top 50%. But if, again, if there's too many Gary's involved and we have management failures kicking through at different levels of the raising process that, that we're, we're throwing money at wind basically. And um, until we have no management failures and every animal gains two, two pounds or a kilo a day of daily gain and you never treat pneumonia. That's, and your genetic profile is that tight. And again, if you mo- there's hardly a herd in Ontario or Canada that has that tight genetically where genetics is actually the true item that holds them back from culling. Yeah. Um, it, it, to me, again, like I'd reinvest that money elsewhere. Yeah. So that's you- not the popular opinion, I realize. No 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 um, but but, yeah i know
0: <laughs>
1: it's it's the reality though like it's a, it's at the end of the day you're still running a business, so like you want to give the best opportunity to everybody, but that it doesn't always make dollars and cents right it no, and I just you know one of the things we want as
2: producers is is consistency of outcome, and um as far as you know when I walk to that fresh cow pen and genetically I don't, most producers don't put themselves in a position to even come close to consistency because there's too much variability in in sire profiles and we've always kind of looked at sire profiles as the next best bull is the next one on the list well in reality the next it's actually the next worst bull because mm-hmm. the ideal of your goal is the top one or top two depending Again, i don't care how you look at them but once you pick your the way you want to look at them the top bull is the one you should be using across, not across the board, but within reason of inbreeding, you know, the more bulls we add to the profile, the more we actually, you know, we actually create a consistency issue and actually change the outcome genetically, at which point we don't need to worry about genetic testing because it's, yeah. such, a, it's such a range of outcome that it doesn't matter
1: just focus on, like you said, spend that money on, on management, spend that on, you know, better, better, better genetics. I'm
2: like, I'm in that world. So I'm fine if you want to do it that way. But again, get rid of the areas where you, where you truly call cows. And for most people that's, you know, reproductively maybe and and invest in a activity program or, you know, some sort of sync protocol that we, we create less cows that leave because of fertility. Um, If it's, you know, we get into every cow's fertility, and we find out that truly it's actually a foot problem. They're not getting pregnant because they're limping, um, yeah. or you know, not getting back to a, a positive daily or a, a positive energy balance quick enough. Yeah. Invest in those areas, you're, you'll get way more return on value than genetically testing for culling purposes.
1: Yeah. So how should like, this sounds like a good segue, like how should a a producer prioritize, sorry, uh, culling strategies? Like, is there outside of like your 200 days in milk, you know, everybody we walk into their herd and they say, well, I don't have any cows to cull. Like where where do we start looking then?
2: Yeah, so I I think, um, and it's a bit of an industry issue, but we tend to really try and individualize the, our top end cows and um, or top end family maybe on, on some herds but the reality is the bottom end is what costs us money um, and uh, we get paid as a blend of the tank not as an individual um, so again you and I will walk on a farm and we'll hear about all the cows given four and a half percent fat or three seven protein when well the other half are giving two three protein and, <laughs> and and three one fat well so if we eliminate them we get way more efficient and we can actually focus on the margins and, and really turn the profits uh, cost of production up um so we generally rank one of the like once you've eliminated um again high risk cows or future high risk cows and actually are truly milking your top most efficient cows uh, i really like looking at um combined fat protein ship per day or per stall, depending on the dairy. Um, and again, when I want to, when I get rid of cows, I want to be more profitable the next day. And um, once you get to the point where, again, you don't, aren't milking any bad ones, that becomes a straight up milk production issue. And um, how much, are you shipping three kilos of butter fat per day or combined fat and protein? Or are you shipping two kilos of a combined fat and protein if you're shipping two, you're on the, you're on the bottom of the list. And, and then, you know, there's strategy still, as far as, you know, obviously um, that's going to help cows that are more fresh. Um, It's going to be harder on cows that are stale. Um, um, So that's where we would say, well, okay, well, what does that group look like under 150 days of milk? Mm -hmm. Again, saying we're not going to, this cow is in her days in, or her milk production at her point of days in milk to warrant a rebreed so she yeah. becomes a call cow yeah. or do not breed which doesn't mean we're getting rid of her today it no. means that we're going to milk her out and i think that's a little bit where people or producers get caught up in saying um i can't i don't want to give her she's giving 40 kilos what do you mean I'm like, well, she's giving 40 kilos today and she might, you know, if we don't breed her, she'll probably get 40 kilos longer than if I do breed her because that uh, lactation curve will kick in quite quicker. And um, so if we can,
0: again, and all that does is allow
2: us more flexibility and that's what we need is flexibility down the road. And um, but yeah, again, it, it, to me, again, it really boils down to selling a cow on her best day and we're going to sell a cow Um, and we're going to sell cows down the road, but making sure we get, we maximize that cow at 80 cents or 70 cents of weight rather than a dead stock truck or, you know, a whole slew of medical bills to keep her alive. Um, and then try and harvest another subpar lactation out of her and then call her 365 days later. So I I would go, this will answer your question, I guess, in a long winded way is, uh, I would move to production after that. Um, you know so somatic depending on herd but yeah maybe somatic cells an issue within herd but to me if if you're proactively getting rid of your worst animals more often so you know through again for me it's second lactation under 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 herd mate average of second lactation and you know obviously those are going to generally be your high somatic cell cows 200 days is a nice way to get rid of cows that get fat and become see those Big swings in body condition scores, which become your metritis and your, ch- and your ketosis cows, um, which also turn in turn become your problem breeder cows. Um, yep. So they kind of call themselves out if you allow them, um, and then um, it gets pretty fun actually milking only the best of your herd all more often. And um, so after that, it becomes a milk quality issue for me. How so? How? much milk are you shipping per day and are you doing it at a, a healthy level from a somatic cell and just, you know, treatment again, getting back into treatments or something like that as a calling tool.
1: Well, I know that, uh, like your, your herd average is going to only be as high as your bottom end is right. Absolutely. You're only, yeah. we, if, we if, measure. It's mathematics.
2: Yeah. And we measure so many herds by their top quarter. And the, again, like you just said, the, the reality is you're only as good as your worst cow. Yeah. And, um, how do we accentuate that? Is get rid of that worst cow or that you know, whether again, however you want to do it, if you want to do it on a yeah. classification side or type side, or you want to do it on a production side, it um, obviously there's going to be more economic economics tied to the production side, but yeah, you want to see your tank, your average milk go up, get rid of your worst ones, yeah, um, and then you find you know, and then you know, a lot of times we find out that yeah, overcrowding and things like that actually get better, and we milk goes up, right? So it uh,
1: if if I had a nickel for every time that a producer said to me, I got rid of five cows <laughs> and my bulk take didn't change, yeah. I would I'd probably have a hundred bucks or so, but <laughs> oh, <you> know, <laughs> maybe a little a, more than that. A, it's amazing, right? But it, <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: it's it's so much. It's, we underestimate how easy it is to open the gate and throw another cow in the pen. And but the the social dynamic that has within the group and within the herd is is quite alarming. Once again, you don't and you don't see it until you get rid of them. And then the tank goes up and you're like, crap, I still have the same problem.
1: Yeah. And I know I listened to, uh, Gordy Jones a long time ago and I know everybody in the dairy circuits heard Gordy and he said that you can't really, uh, you can't really cull your way down to a lower, uh, production. Like if you want to lower your production, you got to get rid of a block of cows. You can't get rid yep. of one or two here, one or two there. Like it, it, it's just not going to do it. You're just going to allow those cows that are there to express their genetic potential better. Yep.
2: Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's truly, I think, again, like I said a little bit earlier, it's, it's truly about eliminating the cows that we know statistically are gonna be bad yeah. or, or worse. I said, shouldn't say bad, but worse, you know, they're, they're, they're gonna ship milk, but putting, a, putting more balls in our corner to say that more things are gonna go right than wrong. Yeah. And um, we have a habit of keeping ones that we know statistically are gonna be poor do worse and but we bred them and now we have to freshen them and they just become nothing but a headache and then we sell them dead or poor along the way
1: so moral of the story is let your best cows have the best opportunity to per, to perform really
2: yeah 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 and that's even before we talk about genetics because yeah that's, it, it, that's genetics is done and, and made that decision long gone Now we just have to put the, like you said, the best cows in the best position.
1: Yeah. I've got a little more of a hypothetical. So usually in the part of the podcast, we get into um, some questions from the crowd, but I think we've gone through a lot of those, but I did have one, which I thought was really interesting. And I know uh, they were doing some research on Alta and about 50% of Alta's bulls now are A2, A2. So should A2 be considered, like an A1, A2 be considered when culling?
2: Um, I guess it depends, again, it goes back to a little bit what your goals are, Um, largely today we do not have a market for A2, A2. Um, If you're into self-processing, there is obviously some new markets coming for those herds. Um, I think um, as an industry whole, um, and I guess I'll just, AI is moving towards, uh, more towards A2, A2 generally speaking. Um, so I think down the road, I don't know how long it will be, but down the road, I think, I don't think you'll be able to buy, uh, if you want my honest opinion, you'll be able to buy an A1 bull. Um, so the whole breed will move A2, A2, um, largely. Um, and that's, you know, something like pole that say, let's say as an example, is something similar where a gene came in and kind of came across the industry. It's just, a2 is just so much different there was just no much you didn't have to give up the near the genetic potential that you did when you were um, to use A2 versus say polled or um, yeah more I guess, um, so polled pulled so it got it caught on more and, it, and now within the AI um, the hierarchy of the, the AI again we're taking A2 bulls over a1 bulls if they're equals Yeah, um, so so that.
1: So it's a like it's a conscious decision that you know maybe producers should start looking at. I know we don't have a market for it, but if, if I, don't, I, don't, like, I don't
2: know if I don't know if I'd give it up today um, again because I do. I think it's something that you can do in herd fairly quickly within two or three generations if you made the conscious effort to do it. So you're looking at with especially with sex semen. It, it's something you could turn. You could go from you know a lion's share herds are somewhere between 40 and 60% A2 already, right? Just based off genetic lines. Um, So your herd or or my herd is going to be that without even trying. Um, If I want to try, uh, I can go to, you know, just A2 bulls, throw in some sex semen and I can turn my herd over really fast to fill that market. If that's something I want to do. Um, but today, if you're not getting paid to do that, make that decision, whether it be through self processing or um, some other avenue, um, I, I'd have to, I today I would challenge the decision to say, are you going to be more profitable to make that decision, considering it's an easy one to make down the road?
1: Yeah. So uh, if you're going to limit your genetic potential by focusing on A2A2, A2, t- does that really make sense right now?
2: Right. Today, I think you're still gonna. And I don't know. It depends what your bull profile is. But let's say if you're gonna give a hundred dollars up to give to go A two A two over A one or an A one A two bull. To me, I'd rather keep the hundred dollars today, and yeah, you know, I'll make that hundred dollars down the road. Um, but I'd rather take that 100 dollars and put that in my bulk tank or wallet and, and invest that somewhere else. Yeah, um, then make that today, just based on the fact that lion chair of your herd or 50%, you know, for an 40 to 60% of your herds are already going to be a two, a two without even trying. Yeah. So
1: no, I, I, and I thought that was a really interesting question because I haven't seen a lot, you know, regarding a two here, other than, like you said, some on-farm processing and things like that. I think I might've been a month ago or something like that. I seen an a two advertisement, but it could have been longer than that. It could have been last week. I have no concept of time anymore, but, uh, um, anyways, no, I, I just thought it, yeah, it was a interesting one. So we're, we're
2: definitely seeing an uptake, um, in a to a two requests. Um, yep. but again, I, I think similar, similar to somatic cell, um, milk production, for instance, I think your, your studs are generally going to take care of that trade on for the industry. I don't think as an individual, unless you're looking down that route of processing, um, that you, it's something you need to worry about um, or breed towards today. Cause I think it's going to happen naturally. Um, AI units aren't bringing in bad, generally speaking, aren't bringing in bad production bulls. They aren't bringing in bad health trait bulls anymore. Um, the same as we did 10, 20 years ago um, where we knew so much less about them. Um, yeah. That bar just kind of always ratchets up by the AI side and um so to me, the average producer today, I, you know, to me, it, it will happen organically. Um, and it's not something we need to worry about as a producer. So. Yeah.
1: Gary, did you have any uh, kind of final remarks?
2: I guess, uh, no, not not really. I guess, I guess to me, again, I, I really want to milk the, when I call cows, it's more or less, I want to be more profitable the day that cow leaves. And, um, not getting caught up and I guess really believing your data and the statistics that come out of that data is and just taking and go and making the decision on it. Um, smaller herds, I guess, have a little bit harder time with getting the emotional connection to an animal or a group of animals. Um, but the reality is if, if again, I for from, from my herd and a lot of the herds we've worked with, it's, it's somewhere around that 200 day mark where statistically speaking, they are going to do worse than the heifer you have in the, in the, in the calving pen, um, that following lactation. And so do yourself a favor and make that management decision then. And yep. you'll, it, it's shocking how quickly you'll breed yourself out of problem cows.
1: I know. I, know, and, I and it didn't I, have,
2: again, didn't have to do anything to do with genetics at that point. It just, the fact that I did not breed that cow and, um, and it didn't mean I got rid of her that day, but I milked her out and I culled her on a cull truck at 15 to 1700 pounds instead of a dead stock truck feet in the air. And um, that's one of the biggest things to me. And um, I think we shoot ourselves a lot of times in, in, our, in the foot uh, and we do it ourselves as as producers. And um, so if we can get out of our own way, I find, um, and the data is there. It's all on our farm computers. Um, and, and most of us, if we don't have it on our farm computer, we're not that much different than our neighbor that does. And again, the, the data, the trends are all generally the same. Um, so, and if you don't want to believe me or look at one at something, one of the things you can look at is call milk. Um, and that's the milk, your average milk of the call cow that leaves your herd. And yeah. if it's below your two year old average, you keep cows too long.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a matter of, Lying out a set of criteria and sticking to it and trying not to uh, keep a cow because her mom was excellent three times, whatever, 50. Or, yeah.
2: Or I need yeah. to hit a hundred thousand. Uh, yeah. You know, to me again, uh, it's great if they, I Hey, I want every cow to make a hundred thousand. Don't get me wrong. Um, Cause that means she lived and she did things the way she should have, but I want it to be, you know, the most efficient every day of her life. And um you know, one of those, uh, producers get for the awards for, you know, 60,000 or 80,000 on the bottom there, it shows dollars per day of life. And, um, I'd rather a cow give 60,000 in four years of life or four lactations and move, and maybe we'll call it wear her out, but versus a cow that did it in eight, uh, that cow that did it in four was far more profitable to me, the producer and made me far more, more money, um, For my future than that cow that did it over eight lactations or six lactations even Um, and that's truly what matters is just being more profitable today and and managing those margins when our inputs generally go up
1: yeah and i and i really enjoy one of the biggest things i enjoy in my job is when a farmer or producer can go from having a whole lot of involuntary calls to a whole lot of voluntary calls because then they're making the decision to get rid of that cow rather than the cow making it for the producer. Yep,
2: absolutely. So. If, if we can, it's a power position, right? Like we can get, yep. we get to the point where, when we get to the point where we've drive the decision and not the cow, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's an easy one and um, it, it makes it fun. And um, yeah, again, you get rid of the odd cow that you don't want to get rid of, but the reality is if if you get rid of her and you're more profitable while well, that in my opinion, that feeling goes away really quickly. And, um, you got, again, your, your cows that you lose prior to 60 days of milk goes way down. And again, you just put yourself in a position where you drive the, drive the decision and not the cows. Um, it's a, it's amazing what they'll do. Yeah.
1: Gary, I think that's a great place to end this I I really appreciate you coming on today and kind of sharing some insights on what you're doing at the farm and and with your off-farm job I know you're in a little bit different uh, situation than a lot of producers and you get to see both sides of the of the industry from the industry that's serving the producer and from the producer side so I I really appreciate your thoughts today.
2: Well thanks again Keith for the invite and uh, I commend you on the uh, dairy podcast and Again, uh, we learn a lot from each other and uh, sometimes uh, I know I try to be an open book um, as far as my dairy goes, but uh, I try and it's as much a benefit to me to get on other people's farms to see what they do right and what I do wrong. And um, I think if we all took that as a producer approach, we'd be a lot better producers as a whole. And um, so, yeah, not be scared to learn from each other. Thanks, Gary. Thanks again.
0: Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and look forward to sharing with you real soon.